book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. We started looking at it last week, and it's a book that certainly speaks of the end times. It's a book that for some people, uh, they just have an intense fascination. Uh, for other people, uh, they're afraid of it. But as we saw last week for the Christian, uh, it's a book that talks about victory for us. And so it's a book that we shouldn't be afraid of as, as we study it. John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he receives uh, a vision, and he's supposed to write down what he sees. And part of what he writes down uh, is apocalyptic, which is some very vivid language uh, that talks about the end times. Part of what he writes down is, is prophecy, which is God's word to his people uh, through his uh, chosen servants. But also epistles. Epistles are letters. And Jesus writes letters to the seven churches, or two seven churches, in Asia Minor. And it's those letters that we've been looking at. We started last week, and we're going to look at for several weeks those churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And not only to see what Jesus had to say to them and their situation at the time, but what he has to say to us. Because at the end of each letter, we're invited to, to hear and, and maybe to grasp something that can apply to us today. As I said last week, I believe that these letters were written to, to real churches who were in real situations that are outlined in those letters. But still for us today, uh, we have much to learn from them. Last week, we looked at the church at Ephesus. And if you missed that... You can listen to that particular sermon uh, on our website or through your mobile app. But today, in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, we look at the church at Smyrna. And we're going to begin reading in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The name Smyrna means bitter, and it's also related to myrrh. If you're familiar with myrrh, remember when the Magi came to visit the Christ child, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In, in the ancient times, myrrh was used in embalming, and it comes from a bush or a tree, a small tree that has large thorns on it. So maybe there's some symbolism there, maybe not. But still, regardless of, of the name, Smyrna, if you were a Christian, was indeed an incredibly bitter place to live. They were under persecution. They were being persecuted by their faith. And so I think it's important, and I think Jesus knew it was important right off the bat to give them some encouragement. So really, Jesus does it in, in, by saying three different things at the very beginning of this letter to the church at Smyrna. He tells them that he is the first and he's the last. He's the eternal he was the first word, and no matter how bad and rampant evil are in the world, he's going to be the last word, and that's a word of assurance for them. He says that he died. He lets them know up front that he has experienced the human condition, that he himself faced death like a lot of them were at the time. But he says, I came to life again. He's not just the one who died, but he is the one who rose again. And so for believers who are suffering to the point of death, Jesus is reassuring them because of their faith, even though they were to die for their faith, that they have eternal life with him. It's an incredible greeting, and it's an incredibly powerful greeting that's full of meaning for that particular church at the time. And he follows with a wonderful statement that they're not suffering in anonymity. 
In verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know your afflictions. The word used for afflictions means crushing pressure. And certainly they were under crushing pressure from a lot of different directions, these Christians who were living in Smyrna. We talked last week about the pressure that that came from the Romans as, as it related to emperor worship. It was something that was being emphasized in the Roman Empire at that time. They claimed that Caesar was God. So everyone had to worship Caesar as God. But for the Christian, the Christian knew that there was only one God. And they worshiped Christ as Lord. And so they were were being persecuted by the government at that time. Some had faced imprisonment and some even death. But there's another crushing pressure that he speaks of that's coming here. He talks about the Jews. He says, look, he says, these are people who were persecuting you as well. One of the ways that they were persecuting them is if you were a Christian, you were excluded from the trade guilds. So he mentions that he sees their poverty, Jesus does. And what he's talking about here, the word means abject poverty. It means possessing absolutely nothing. If they were excluded from the trade guilds, they couldn't have work. If they didn't work, they couldn't provide for their families and they couldn't eat. And what made matters worse is Smyrna was an incredibly wealthy city. So you're being excluded. You couldn't even work for a living. Yet you were living in the midst of all this prosperity which just intensified the pressure that was on you. Jesus says, look, I know your situation. But Jesus says something else. It's a word of encouragement for them. He says, I see your poverty and your afflictions. He said, but look, you are rich. And I'm sure for them, maybe it took them a moment to say, wait a minute. I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. But what he's talking about here is the richness that they have, the riches they have, come from God. They have his presence. There's a richness in that. They have eternal life. They have riches that the world, that no power can take away from them. And he's saying, look, in the midst of your afflictions, in the midst of your poverty, remember that you have riches that came from me that no one can take away. And then he talks about the Jews. We mentioned them about as it related to the trade guilds. But the Jews, they were allowed to practice their religion by the, by the Roman government. But the Jews were by no means friends of the Christians. In fact, they were slanderers and they were enemies of the Christian faith. And it's even suggested that they had corrupted even their own faith by worshiping other gods. But Jesus calls them for who they are. Jesus says they they say they're Jews, but he says they're a synagogue of Satan. They're a synagogue of Satan. First time Satan's mentioned in Revelation. The Greek word for Satan means adversary. The Greek word for devil means slanderer. And the reason they were the synagogue of Satan, they were the enemies. They were the adversaries of the Christians. They were the slanderers of the Christians. So Jesus says, I know who they are. I'm going to call them out for who they are. They're not believers. They're they're the synagogue of Satan. They're doing his work. 
But then in verse 10 and 11, Christ has some hope for these suffering Christians. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Again, Jesus acknowledges that he is aware of their current situation. But here's the implication that things are going to get worse. Jesus says that I know what you are about to suffer. And so that's not a very encouraging word, I'm sure. The suffering that they're going through, the poverty that they're experiencing. And, and, and here's Jesus saying, well, I know what you're going to suffer. In other words, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But, but, but the assurance here is the idea that Jesus knows the devil's plans. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's aware of the situation. And there's an assurance that, that, he's on t- that he knows that he's on top of it. He doesn't just know it, but he understands it. And he's going to be there with them. But also, he says that some of you are going to be imprisoned. And you're going to be tried. And you're going to be put to death. And he says this will be a time of testing for you. And he says to remain faithful during this testing because he assures them that this crushing pressure that they're experiencing now and is going to get worse as we go is not going to be long. He says for 10 days, it's not a literal 10 days. In the Bible, 10 days signifies a brief time. But what he's trying to tell them is, look, as bad as it gets, it's temporary. It's not eternal. It's not going to last forever. And what he's trying to get across to them is the idea that, look, you're suffering now, but it's temporary, and in the end, you are victors. You're victorious. It's not just that the suffering is going to end and it's going to be over with, but in the end of it all, you're going to be victors when it's all over. He says those who remain faithful even to death will have a, a crown of life, a victor's crown. And it stands in stark contrast to the suffering that others are going to know eternally. And what he's telling them is this wonderful, this wonderful thought to put in their minds. Look, you're suffering now. But he, and even though you might face death, you're going to march into eternity wearing a victor's crown. Life awaits you. And he says, not only that, but you're not going to have to go through the second death. Everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to have to stand before God. But he says, look, you're, you're not going to have to go through the second death, which is a separation, an eternal separation from God in hell. But you're going to spend eternity with me. You're not going to have to go through the second death. You, you suffered here, but you're going to spend an eternity with me. Eternal life awaits you. You are victors in the end. He says, so remain faithful. Remain faithful to me. He's encouraging to them. But as I said earlier... The letter also says, and each letter ends with, let, let the one who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we want to do today is we want to take what we've talked about and what Jesus had to say to this church at Smyrna that was suffering and see what there is that applies to us today. There are several things. And the first one is this, that, that there's a cost associated with being a Christian, 
Uh, the Bible tells us is, is the end times uh, approach and as it comes that persecution will increase, that pressure will increase on Christians. But it shouldn't take us by surprise. In 1 Peter 4.12, he, he, he warns the, the believers, he says, look, he says, don't act surprised when this comes on you. It's coming. Be ready for it. Sometimes I think, though, there are Christians all over the world that maybe have a better understanding or at least a better understanding of the situation that the church in Smyrna was going through than we do uh, in the church in America today. If you think about us, I mean, as American Christians, certainly our, our faith is belittled and, and certainly our freedoms, uh, people want to maybe take them away from us and, and sometimes we're made fun of and, and a lot of times we're just, just pretty much ignored. But, but compared to the suffering that's going on with Christians around the world, ours sometimes can, can seem very small. But, but you have to be careful because you can't say, well, just because we're not suffering like the Christians over here, that doesn't mean we're not suffering. I, I tell people all the time, just because you can find someone else that's in a worse situation than you're in doesn't mean that your situation's not important to God. And it is. But the warning here for us is kind of a sober warning that maybe we are not facing the persecution that some Christians are facing around the world, but there is the reality, and we need to realize this, is that there are people in the world who would like to wipe us off the face of the earth. They're there. You see them on television all the time. Now, will it come to us? I don't know. But the Bible says that we need to be ready. That we need not be surprised when persecution comes. That we need to be ready for it, no matter what form it comes. So if there are people trying to wipe us off the face of the earth, then the question is, well, well how do you fight back? Well, that's really not the question. The, the, the question is not, what are you doing to fight back? The question is, are you being faithful? That's the question related to this church in Smyrna. Jesus doesn't say anything to them about fighting back. His encouragement to them is to remain faithful in the spite of opposition and in spite of their persecution. He encourages them to be faithful. Now, certainly, being faithful in their instance takes a lot of courage. You know, it took courage to profess your faith in the, in the face of poverty and in the face of persecution. It, it, it took a lot of courage. And it takes courage for us to stand strong in, in, a, in a world that, that is all about compromise and in a world that maybe belittles your faith. It certainly takes courage. But the courage and the boldness that we need and the courage and the boldness that we are encouraged to have relates to the courage and the boldness to be faithful to be faithful even in the face of opposition and encouragement. As I recall, Jesus said that we are to bless those who persecute us. Jesus said that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And Jesus said that we are to love one another as he has loved us. That's how we're faithful to him. We're also faithful to him when we share our faith with others. We are faithful to him when we don't hide our faith 
But when we let our light shine, we are faithful to him when we help other people and serve them. We are faithful to him when we do what we are supposed to do for our families as parents. All of those things involve being faithful. That's what Jesus says in the face of persecution, in the face of whatever level of persecution you are facing. Be faithful to me. Have the courage to be faithful. Now, does that mean we need to roll over? No, not at all. That's not what he's saying at all. If you, th- if you remember last week, we talked about the church at Ephesus. Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for being strong and courageous. He commended them for knowing evil when they saw it. He commended them for not allowing heresy and false teaching in their church. He, he commended them for taking a stand. But what he had against them, if you remember from last week, was that they were motivated more by the controversy than they were by love. And, and he says, look, you're, you're doing good things, but, but don't lose the love aspect. You know, anyone can fight back physically and with words for that matter. But it takes real courage to love others when you're being persecuted. There's an old song that says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So the question for us is, would there be even enough evidence that we were believers Are we really faithful enough that that they would actually recognize us enough to persecute us? Second thing that he says, that our struggles are not with flesh and blood. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but rather our struggle is with our great adversary and our slanderer and our enemy, Satan, who uses people to accomplish his purposes. You know, God has granted freedom to us. We call it free will. God has given us the freedom to choose. But God has not only granted freedom in the human realm, but he has also granted it at the cosmic level. And it's clear from Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna that Satan has both freedom and power. And not only does he have it, but he has unleashed it in the world. In the book of Revelation, the the letter to the church at Smyrna brings this into focus. That we as Christians are, are caught in a battle, but our battle is not against flesh and blood. But we are caught in this battle where Satan is using his power and his freedom while we are trying to live in the will of God. Earl Palmer writes, It is neither true nor helpful for the Christian to interpret all crisis events in the story of human existence as according to God's will. Now, yes, God can take your bad situations, he can take your mistakes, he can take all of those things, and he can turn them into something good. But I really think you're going to really have a hard time in, in your relationship with God and in your understanding of God if you equate everything that happens with somehow being God's will. Now, we're conditioned to that. Something bad happens and, and people of faith will say, well, 
I don't understand it, but it, it, it was just God's will. Now, I think you're better served if you see this world as a battle between God's will and Satan's will. And that you understand that Satan is using his freedom and his will in the world. Now, I want to give you some examples. I think there are a lot of things that happen that are not God's will. Let's say I go out Friday night and I go out drinking. And I get drunk. And I get in my car and I drive home drunk. And in the process of doing so, I run over and kill a four-year-old girl. Is my sin God's will? No, it's not. No, what has happened is <laughs> that I've been used because I wasn't standing firm and I wasn't standing faithful. When God's will that that happened, sin is not God's will, but Satan is using his power. You saw on the news, if you've watched it, ISIS terrorists beheading Ethiopian Christians. Is that murder God's will? No, it's not. And we really have to come to grips with the idea that the battle that we're in is not against flesh and blood, but Satan is using his freedom and his power through people to do evil in the world. God's allowing it, but in the final analysis, it's going to be a battle over God's will and Satan's. And if you've read this book, you know how that turns out. The testing and the suffering are temporary. That's the third thing we can get from this. We need to be careful that even though we recognize Satan for who he is, we need to be careful that we don't inflate Satan's power beyond its actual size. Because Satan's power is not ultimate. Satan's power is not final. And there is a time limit on his reign of terror. That's why Jesus said at the beginning of this letter, look, I am the first and the last. I get the first word, I have the last word. Satan's reign of terror has a time limit on it. And the power of evil is not the final power. Christ is the final power. And we need to realize that. That in the face of evil, and we battle evil, and we shake our heads, but we need to remember it's temporary. Now, it's a challenge for us to remain faithful in the meantime, but it's temporary. And if we stay faithful, we're going to be victors in the end because Christ is the final word, not Satan. And we share in that victory. Paul, writing in his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, writes that in the midst of troubles that we, we need to have a proper focus. And that proper focus is that we not focus on what we can see. In other words, not focus on our present circumstances, but focus on what we cannot see. And what we cannot see, what is unseen, as he puts it, the promise of heaven that we have through faith. Because that is what is eternal. Not our present circumstances. Not the power of Satan, but that is what is eternal. And then in 1 Peter 4, 5, and 6, Peter tells his readers that they can rejoice even in the midst of all this that's going on. They can rejoice because they have an inheritance in heaven. And even though they face grief and trials, 
Peter tells them that they are shielded by God's power. It's temporary what we go through. It's difficult, but we need to remain faithful because the final word, the final power, is not Satan. And then the reward that we have is not here, but the reward is not, the reward is heavenly and not earthly. In Romans 8, verse 18, he says, I, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, we're promised strength to face whatever trials that we have, and we are promised that, that God's presence will be with us, and his presence can take away our fear. But our ultimate reward is not here. Our ultimate reward for our faithfulness is not here. His presence will be with us here. His power will be with us, will be with us here. But that's not our ultimate reward. The ultimate reward for our faithfulness, faithfulness the ultimate release from suffering is not here. But the ultimate release is in heaven. And we too escape the second death, that eternal separation from God. We spend an eternity with him, not separated from him. Adam Clark wrote many, 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 many years ago uh, something, and I just want to paraphrase it. That he just says, if the glory that is going to be revealed to us is the enjoyment of God himself, then the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be put in competition with his glory, which shall be revealed to us. This letter shows us a lot of things. It shows us that evil is real. It shows us that we will feel the effects of evil. But it also shows us the source of evil. And we can call evil for what it is. And we can blame evil on Satan where it belongs. We don't have to try to figure out, why'd God do this? No, we can name evil for what it is, and we can put the blame where it belongs. But this letter also challenges us to be faithful, to do the things that Christ has called us to. That's the challenge for us in the face of evil, in the face of persecution, is to remain faithful. Don't get off track. Remain faithful to what you're called to do. It also shows us that there's an all-sufficient power, the one who died and the one who rose again. The first and the last. That's the power that we have on our side. But above all, what I think it shows for us is that it's us, you and me, believers. We are the ones who are going to wear the crown and not Satan. So remain faithful. Remain faithful. And wear the crown in eternity. Let's pray.